We are in a teaching series called Exposed, where we are dealing with healthy sexuality. And this is our third week on this teaching series, and it'll be the final week. I figured three weeks was about the longest I could get away with before people just started not showing up for church because we sufficiently freaked them out enough. So this will be our last week, but we called it Exposed because Hebrews 4.13 says that we are all naked and exposed before the Lord. We're all naked and exposed before the Lord. He sees everything. He knows everything. He shines a spotlight on everything in our hearts, every thought in our mind, every sin we struggle with. He sees it all. So why not deal with it? Why not deal with it? And so we spent the first couple of weeks talking about the the limits that God places on our sexuality and how those limits set us free to enjoy it to the fullest. Last week we talked about what if it isn't wonderful? What if you're in a godly marriage but your sex life just isn't working out the way that you had hoped? And we walked through a path to healing last week. This week in our final message of Exposed, I want to share with you a message called The Love Killer. The love killer. And if you've got your notes and and your bullets in there, you can see our our opening thesis is actually a quote from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. And the quote says this, Pornography is a social and physical toxin that destroys relationships, steals innocence, erodes compassion, breeds violence, and kills love. And when I read that quote, I thought, you know what? I can't say it any better, so I'm just going to put it right in the notes. Pornography is a social and physical toxin that destroys relationships, steals innocence, erodes compassion, breeds violence, and kills love. Pornography is one of the greatest love killers in our society today. And I think it's important that we begin to deal with it. Continuing that same quote from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, they said this, The issue of pornography is ground zero for all those concerned for the sexual health and well-being of our loved ones, communities, and society as a whole. Pornography is not just impacting individuals or families. It is impacting our entire society. It is impacting the church. It is impacting the kingdom of God. And I believe it's time as a church that we deal with it. It's time as a church that we begin to tackle this issue. And that's why I believe that today is a day that people are going to get set free. Today is a day that shame and guilt are going to be peeled away. And people are going to find truth and wholeness and freedom. In 2014 in the Washington Times, a reporter wrote this. There are two kinds of Christians in America. Those who watch porn and those who lie about it. Two kinds of Christians in America. Those who watch porn and those who lie about it. Now, I don't believe that's 100% true. But if this is what secular people think of the church, then this might help us understand why the church has lost its place in our culture. What do the real numbers say? Well, according to a 2016 Barna research study, 64% of men who claim to be Christian look at porn regularly. How does that compare to non-Christians? It's the exact same number. 
The exact same number. How about for women? Right? It's been real easy for years, decades even, to say this is just a man problem. And shame on us men. Not anymore. 15% of Christian women look at porn regularly. How does that compare to the world? 30% of non-Christian women look at porn regularly. This isn't just a man problem anymore. And this isn't a problem outside of the church. This is a problem inside of the church. And it's time to deal with it. And I'm going to speak boldly today because I know the devastating effects of pornography. And I know how difficult it is to get clean from it. And I know how difficult it is to stay clean from it. I was first exposed to pornography at a very young age, probably five or six years old, the first time I looked at pornography. I was completely addicted to pornography before I even reached adolescence. I wasn't even going through puberty yet, and I was already addicted to it. That means that every part of my adolescence, every part of my sexual formation as a teenager was infected by pornography. And that continued in my life until I came to Christ. And when I came to Christ, I began to put the work in to get set free. And it was work, and it was difficult, and it required commitment, and it required conviction. But I put the work in. And God has delivered me from it, but that doesn't mean that it's all just easy now. Because let's be honest, I'm still a man and I'm still wired a certain way. And so I still have to do battle with those things that would want to draw me back in. A memory wants to come up. An old picture. An old thought comes back. And in that moment, I have to wrestle with how long am I going to dwell on this thought? And how far am I going to take it? And how many memories am I going to recall? And how many things am I going to let flood through my mind? And there is spiritual warfare taking place in that moment. And I would love to say that I'm instantly victorious every time, but I'm not. Sometimes it lingers. And then my spirit rises up and I've got to rebuke it. If I'm on Facebook... And that spam comes through with an inappropriate picture. Spiritual warfare kicks in right away. If I'm on the internet and because of the amazing technology of cookies on the internet, they know that I'm a a man in my 40s on the internet, so what do they do? They put up underwear ads and swimsuit ads, right? And the moment that underwear ad pops up, spiritual warfare is taking place. How long am I going to stare at it? Am I going to click on it? Am I going to follow a trail? And my spirit has to rise up to rebuke those things. I understand the brokenness in my life, what pornography led me to do and what pornography led me to become, how it caused me to look at women, how it caused me to treat women. I know firsthand the devastating effects of pornography, but I also know the glory of being set free. And I want some people to experience that glory today. What is pornography in your notes? We define pornography as this. Any depiction in photos, videos, sounds, or writing of sexual behavior intended to cause sexual excitement. Any depiction. 
Those steamy romance books, that's pornography. Oh, pastor, it was a great movie, but it had a sex scene in it. Well, how about instead of calling it a sex scene, how about we call it pornography? Would that cause us to look at it differently? See, we used to have definitions for pornography. We used to call it softcore pornography versus hardcore pornography. Now, what we used to call softcore pornography is just what's on our TVs every day. And we've come to accept it and justify it. We call it the pornification of culture. That sexual excitement is being driven into every aspect of our culture. It's gotten so prevalent, in fact, that a recent survey of, of teenagers and young adults, they found it more morally reprehensible that you don't recycle than that you look at porn. They're more disgusted by the fact that you don't recycle than by the fact that you engage with pornography. That's where our culture has come to. And church, it's time to take it on. How pervasive have pornography become? The average age of first exposure to pornography now is about 8 to 11 years old. And at least 60% of those cases, that kid wasn't even looking for it. It just popped up on their computer or their device. The problem is, it doesn't matter if we were looking for it or not, our brains all react to it the exact same way. It takes less than a fraction of a second for that image to go from a screen through our eyeballs, through our octave nerve, to hit our brain, and it releases a sudden flood of endorphins into our brain. 8 to 11 years old. By the time our children reach the age of 18, 93% of boys and 62% of girls will have viewed internet pornography. The internet industry makes $97 billion a year. How much money is that? Well, you know, people like to complain that professional athletes make too much money. The porn industry makes more than the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and Major League Baseball all combined. Pornography makes more money every year. 30% of all content on the internet is pornography. More people are viewing pornographic websites than people are viewing Netflix, which Netflix could be considered a pornographic website, but than are viewing Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. More people are viewing pornography. So what does pornography do to our brain? Well, pornography physically alters our brain in the same way that substance abuse does. But the weird thing is with substance abuse, you're actually putting a chemical in your body that transforms your brain and restructures your brain. With pornography, you're not putting a chemical in your body, yet it is physically restructuring your brain in the same way. Research has shown, and if you're curious, I'm not going to quote all these research studies, but all of these are backed by research. If you want me to email it to you, I can. But through research, they have found in, in users of pornography a heightened activation of the amygdala. What does that mean? It means that you have faster and more powerful responses to cues. Well, what are the cues? Your phone, your computer, 
your television, an underwear ad. Your amygdala has been restructured and you now respond faster and more powerfully to these cues. There's a decreased connection between your ventral striatum and your prefrontal cortex. What does that mean? It means a loss of impulse control. You can't control the impulses to look at pornography. They've discovered decreased brain matter in the caudate nucleus. This is an area that deals with motivation and decision-making. So the more you look at porn, the more it impairs your motivation. You're not motivated to do anything else but look at porn. And the more it affects your decision-making. They found and researched the enlargement of the amygdala, which causes an impairment in our decision-making. And they have also found that looking at pornography hijacks our mesolimbic system which is our our dopamine reward system, which means that pornography floods our brain with more and more dopamine, which means we are unusually motivated to continue to look at it. It's restructuring our brains. For our teenagers looking at pornography, research has shown that it destroys the emotional bond between you and your parents or your guardians or your caregivers. It teaches young people to view women as objects. It increases sexual activity and high-risk sexual behavior for young people. It does for adults as well. The old justification, well, you know, I'm looking at porn. At least I'm not having sex with other people. Well, chances are you're going to. Because what we see in porn, we then try to act out in real life. For young people, it causes uncertainty about their sexual identity. It increases sexting behavior, which is the texting of nude images of ourselves to boyfriends and girlfriends, which young people, if you didn't know this, if you have a naked picture of one of your friends on your phone, that is child pornography, which is a federal offense, and it's a federal felony. It increases delinquent and criminal behavior. Young people who look at pornography are more likely to lie and to steal and to get into fights and to get kicked out of their house and to run away. It doesn't just increase sexual behavior. It increases all criminal behavior in our young people. And it also leads to higher usage rates. What does that mean? That means the younger you are when you start looking at porn, the more and more you look at it. What about our adults? The effect on adults, negative body image for both men and women. Our bodies can't compare to what we see in pornography. We feel pressure to perform pornographic acts, especially for women. Feel pressure to act the way that the women do in pornographic movies, which, let's be honest, it's not real. Over 60% of our young people today say they look to pornography for sex education, and yet nothing in pornography is real. It's all acted out. The way people respond, the way it works, none of it is real. We become more accepting of rape myths. You know the rape myths? Like no actually means yes, or no means push a little harder, or she actually gets turned on when you're forcing it on her. Those rape myths, we are more and more accepting of those the more that we look at pornography. There's an increased likelihood of committing or suffering from domestic violence, sexual abuse, and sex trafficking. The more we look at pornography, research has shown the more we're likely to commit those acts or the more likely we are to be a victim of those acts. It lowers your sexual satisfaction 
The more you look at porn, the less you're satisfied with real sex. It lowers relational satisfaction. It begins to degrade the quality of all of our relationships. It causes sexual dysfunction. The more you look at pornography, the harder time you have actually performing sex in real life with a real person. It causes the sexual objectification of women. It increases attitudes supporting violence against women. One meta-analysis of pornography found that up to 88% of all scenes in pornography depict either violence against women or sex that is degrading to women. And in almost all of them, what is the woman doing? Acting like she's enjoying it. And so when we watch pornography, what does our brain begin to believe? That that's real. We talked about it causes a loss of impulse control, but it also decreases our mental health. Loneliness, depression, anxiety, loss of self-worth, mental illness begins to come in the more that we look at pornography. And what about the effects on marriage? Well, research shows that porn users are less likely to get married. Porn use actually increases infidelity, some studies show, by up to 300%. You are three times more likely to be unfaithful to your spouse if you look at pornography. Using pornography decreases trust and intimacy, the very cornerstones of healthy marriage. And one research study showed that 56% of all divorces involve at least one partner being obsessed with pornography. You guys, this is destroying our children. It's destroying our marriages. It's destroying our families. And it's time to take a stand. And so today, I want to I preach to you from the Word, but I want to preach hope. And I want to speak specifically to those that are dealing with pornography and even other forms of sexual addiction that may have stemmed from pornography or may uh, have, have been birthed on their own in your life. And what I want to do today is I want to share four vignettes with you. What's a vignette? Well, in playwriting and in book writing and stuff, a vignette is a short scene that is very memorable that evokes an emotional response that gives you an insight into that character. And so what I want to do is I want to find four vignettes in the Bible, four short scenes that give us an insight into a character in the Bible that can speak to us about how we're going to overcome our addictions. Now, there's not any one of these four that by itself is going to set you free. But some mix of all four of them together, along with your willingness to put the work in and your conviction to get free, I believe this will work towards our freedom. So let's look at these vignettes. The first vignette is the young fool. We're going to go to Proverbs chapter 7. Starting in verse 6, it says this, For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice. So this is the writer of the Proverbs looking out his window, watching this scene take place. And I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense. Here's our young fool. Passing through the street near her corner. And he takes the way to her house. 
in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him, and with a brazen face she says to him, I was due to offer my peace offerings. Today I have paid my vows. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I have sprinkled my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He has taken a bag of money with him. At the full moon, he will come home. With her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. Suddenly, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare so he does not know that it will cost him his life. We have the picture of a young fool walking in front of this woman's house and the woman comes out and seduces him. And he gives in to the seduction and goes in and has sex with this woman. And it says this sin will cost him his life. But here's what I want you to get from this vignette. Is that the young fool's fall into sin did not start when he was seduced by the woman. It started when he knowingly put himself in the exact place and the exact time to experience that temptation. It says he was walking to her house. He knew whose house it was. It says this woman's out in the marketplace. She's always out on the street corners. Her feet never stay at home. Everyone in town knows who this woman is. He's not accidentally walking in front of her house. And when is he walking in front of her house? In the darkness, late at night. This young fool is putting himself in the exact place and time where he knows this woman is going to come out and seduce him. He didn't just unwittingly fall into temptation. He put himself there. So what are we to do with our pornography addiction? In your notes, stop putting yourself in position to fail. Stop putting yourself in the exact places where you know you're going to stumble. You know where they are. You know where you are when you look at porn. You're usually alone. You've usually isolated yourself. You've gotten away from your family. You've gotten yourself away from people that care about you. You know what kind of mindset that you're in. You know where you are when you look at porn. So stop putting yourself there. There's a, a, an acronym. It's called HALT-B. If you've got room somewhere on your notes there to write it down the side of the paper, HALT-B, H-A-L-T-B. It stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired, and bored. Those are the five most common times that you're going to look at pornography. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or bored. If any of those five attitudes or, or, or physical reactions are happening in your body, 
Don't walk in front of the woman's house. Don't put yourself there. So what do we need to do? We need to set aggressive boundaries. Set aggressive boundaries. First and foremost, don't ever be alone with a computer. So if you've got a family computer in your house, put it in the living room, not in your bedroom, not in the closet. Put it in the living room so that somebody is always around when you're on the computer. And if you're home alone at times, then put a password on your computer that you don't know. So only your spouse can log you in. Or only your child can log you in. You say, well, that's a little ridiculous, isn't it? No, not if you want to be free. Not if you want to be free. We need to put some strict boundaries on our devices, our phones, and our tablets. I've had men that I have walked through pornography addiction with. And they have given me their phone, and I have set the parental controls on their phone. So they can't add apps. They can't delete apps. I can block whatever apps I want. They can't access it. And if they need a new app on their phone, they have to come to me so I will unlock it. I'll put the app on, and then I'll lock it again. say, well, that just makes me feel like a child. So what? You're getting set free. You're getting set free. You know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? He said, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to go to heaven with one eye than to go to hell with two. Now, Jesus was using exaggeration. He doesn't really want us to gouge our eyes out. But what Jesus is saying is if something is causing you to sin, get it out of your life. It's not worth it. So if that means you got to get off social media, then get off social media. Oh, but social media is important. Not that important. Jesus says, gouge it out and get it out of your life. You have someone put restrictions on your phone, but you're still smart enough to get around them? Then go get yourself a flip phone. Get that phone out of your life. We got to set some aggressive boundaries. Part of having aggressive boundaries is having accountability partners. People that will help maintain those boundaries in our lives. We need some accountability partners. If that means involving your spouse in the process, then involve your spouse in the process. Getting some friends who will speak into your life. I will say this with full conviction. You are not going to beat this alone. You're not. You could take every tip that I give you today, and if you try to do it alone, you're still not going to beat this you got to get some people in your life that are going to help hold you accountable to those boundaries. It's time to stop being the young fool. Let's stop putting ourselves in position to fail. Our second vignette, Genesis chapter 36. I apologize. I think that's supposed to be Genesis 39, so you got the wrong ones, Antonio, so take that off the screen. Totally my fault. That's a typo. Genesis 39, verses 6 through 9. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. Who is he? It's Potiphar. Joseph has been sold into slavery. Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house, but he has the favor of God on his life. So even as a slave, he becomes the most significant, most powerful slave in the house. 
So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you. I can touch everything in this house except you. I can't touch you because you're his wife. And then what does he say? How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? How could I? How could I do this? See, the second vignette, what we need is we need a how could I mentality. Why? Because so much of our addiction is about lying and justifying and minimizing. It's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. There's worse things that I could be doing. Instead of lying and justifying and minimizing, what we need to do is be like Joseph and have a how could I mentality. How could I do this to my wife? How could I do this to my husband? How could I do this to my children? How could this be the legacy that I'm going to leave? But most importantly, how could I do this to God? How could I do this? We've gotten so good in Christianity at just, you know, justifying things and using grace as a cover for things. Well, I'll, I'll repent of it tomorrow. God will be okay with it. You know, I read verses in the Bible like Hebrews 10.26 says, If we willingly continue to sin after we come to Christ, His blood doesn't cover our sins. You know, I read in John chapter 8 where Jesus told the adulterous woman, go and sin no more. He said, stop sinning. In 1 Corinthians 6, he says, those who practice sexual immorality won't inherit the kingdom of God. Right? We need to get a better grip on what grace is and what grace is not. And what grace is not is an excuse to willfully continue in sin and lie about it and justify it. Instead, what we need to say is, God loves me. Jesus died for me. He wants the best for me. He redeemed me. So how could I? How could I do this? Now, we know Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, but there needs to be some conviction. Right? The devil brings condemnation, but the Holy Spirit brings conviction. And we need that Holy Spirit conviction to come into our hearts for us to say, how could I? Our third vignette, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1 through 4. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David, but David stayed at Jerusalem. 
Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittites? And David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. We have the picture of King David, a man after God's own hearts, is up on the balcony on top of his palace, walking along the railing of his balcony. And he looks across the way, and there on the roof of another building is a beautiful woman naked and bathing. And David begins to stare at her, and he begins to lust after her. And because he's the king and he can do whatever he wants, he has his way with her. What does this vignette teach us about overcoming pornography? It's because King David was not supposed to be on the balcony that night. It's not where he was supposed to be. In verse 1, it says in the spring at the time when kings go out to war, David was supposed to be on the battlefield fighting the battles that God had called them to fight to advance the kingdom of God. But David stayed home. And not only that, but it's late at night, and it says David got out of bed. Not only should he have been on the battlefield doing what he was supposed to do, he also should have been in bed with his wife, not up on the balcony by himself. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. So what does this mean for us? If we're going to overcome our pornography addiction, it means get off the balcony. The balcony is the place you're not supposed to be. And so if we'll get off the balcony, let's go get where God has told us we're supposed to be. And what does that mean? It means this. It's a whole lot easier to say yes to what God is doing than to say no to addictive behaviors like pornography. It's a whole lot easier to say yes to what God is doing. I talked about the struggles that I have to fight in my own thought life. You know when I don't have to fight those struggles? is man, when I am in the battle, when I am doing what God called me to do, when I am praying for people, when I'm studying the Word, when I am doing belong groups and rooted groups and discipling people, and when I'm having lunch with people and praying and raising up leaders, when I'm doing the things God told me to do, I don't fight my thought life. It's when I'm not doing those things, when I'm not where God wants me to be, that's where I have to fight. So let's get off the balcony. The balcony for you might represent that you've been running from God's will for your life. The balcony for you might represent that God has told you to do one thing and you're choosing to do another. The balcony might represent that you're being lazy and spending a lot of time laying around doing nothing instead of getting out there and making a difference in the world. But I tell you what, if we will get off the balcony and go where God tells us to go, we'll start winning the fights. We'll start winning the fight. Our last vignette, Dr. Val read this during service last week, but we're going back to it again this week. Psalms 23. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This final vignette is the scene of a shepherd with his sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. And what does that shepherd do? He leads his sheep into places of abundance so that they can graze off the pastures. He leads his sheep into places of safety so that they won't be attacked by the wolves. He leads his sheep into places of peace so that they won't be traumatized by the chaos. Even in the dark of night, he stays with his sheep and they're never alone. What does this last vignette teach us? It teaches us that to overcome our pornography addiction, we're going to have to trust that God will truly provide everything, everything I need. You see, every time we turn to something other than God to meet our needs, such as pornography, it's because we either don't trust or don't believe that God can meet that need. So we go and we look at pornography. Why? Because we're lonely, because we feel rejected, because we're in pain and it numbs our pain. Whatever the thing is, something drove you to that pornography. But the very need that that pornography is meeting in your life is a need that God is supposed to be meeting. God wants to shepherd you. He wants to lead you beside still waters. He wants to provide a banquet for you, even when you feel like the enemy is surrounding you. He wants goodness and loving kindness to follow you. My pastor always says they're like two puppy dogs nipping at your heels. Goodness and loving kindness. The shepherd wants to take you to those places. But as long as we're getting our needs met somewhere else, we're not trusting the shepherd. We're not allowing God to bring us to those places. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And then verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That sounds a whole lot like pornography to me. And so God, the shepherd, is calling out to you, saying, stop loving the things of this world and receive my love. Let me shepherd you. I will provide for you. If you're in pain, I'll provide comfort for you. If you feel rejected, I'll provide acceptance for you. If you're afraid, I'll provide courage for you. I'll provide everything that you need, but you got to stop looking at the pornography. 
or else you'll never look to me. God provides us everything we need, including the people in our life that we need to help walk through this journey with us. Pastor Danae, will you come play the keyboard? I want to finish by sharing one more story with you. This is a story of a friend of mine, and I asked his permission to share it. It was a little over six years ago in Vancouver, Washington. It was actually a, a January night, just over six years ago, when a good friend of mine came over to my house late at night and said, can we talk? And I said, yeah. And he said, can we go for a walk? And I'm thinking, it's January in Washington. It's like 30 degrees outside. I don't want to go for a walk right now. But I could tell from the sound of his voice, this needed to be a walk. This wasn't a conversation that he wanted to have in my house with my family around. And so we bundled ourselves up, and we went for a walk around my neighborhood in the freezing temperatures late at night. And my friend began to open up to me. Though I'd only known him for about six years, he began to open up to me that over the last 20 years, he had lived a double life. And he'd been addicted to pornography, and that had birthed into sexual addiction, and he'd been buying prostitutes and sleeping around, and he had hid it from his wife and his children for 20 years. That night, his wife found something. He got caught, not for everything, just one thing. But in that moment when his wife confronted him with that one thing, he decided to tell her everything. He decided that was his moment to finally come clean. This was his moment to finally get out from under the burden of this secret, hidden, shameful life that he had carried for 20 years. He'd gone to church every Sunday, gone through the motions at church for 20 years living this double life. And after he shared it with his wife, he got in his car and he drove to my house because he needed to share it with me because he needed a friend to walk through it with him. He asked me to come to their first divorce mediation as his wife was preparing to leave him. Really just wanted me to be there so things would stay civil and it wouldn't get crazy. So it was fairly awkward as I sat there between them and the mediator. But after that mediation hearing, his wife had a change of heart. God began to move in her heart. She said, I don't want this. I don't want divorce. I don't want a broken family. I don't want this to be the legacy for our kids. And she invited my friend back home to begin to work it out. My friend began to put in some work, some serious work. He started going through counseling. He joined some accountability groups, some very in-your-face, very confrontational accountability groups. He had to set up boundaries in his life. 
and his wife was included in those boundaries. His wife put an app on his phone that she could turn his phone into a live camera at any moment. So no matter where he was, his wife could always see what he was doing and what he was looking at. He also had to account for every penny that he spent so that he could no longer get away with spending money on prostitutes. He had to put all of these strict boundaries in his life. But most of all, for the first time in his life, he truly began to trust God and to walk through this journey with God. And I got to watch him go to church, and his worship wasn't just that, you know, religious going through the motion worship. It was the type of worship of a man who had been set free, a man who had truly experienced the grace of God and was understanding how powerful the love of God was in his life. I texted him yesterday. I said, hey, man, how long have you been clean? He texted me back, 2,224 days. Just over six years from that January night that we took a walk in the dark. He's able to raise his kids now who are high school age and able to talk with them openly about it instead of just letting his children fall into the same patterns that he has fallen into. Come on, God can do it. He did it in my life. He did it in my friend's life. He can do it in your life. Jesus, come right now. Come right now, Lord. Begin to set us free. Begin to set us free. Help us to not be like the young fool and we keep putting ourselves in position to fail. Help us to have the conviction to set aggressive boundaries in our lives. Jesus, help us to have the how could I mentality. How could I do this to you, God? How could I do this to my family? Give us the conviction, the lying and the justifying and the minimizing end right now, right here. Help us to get off the balcony, God, and say yes to you. And help us as little lambs to trust you to shepherd us, God. Not pornography, not sexual sin. You shepherd us, God. You meet our needs. Help us right now in this moment, God. Just a moment of honesty. For those that need to circle yes right now, God, by your Holy Spirit, give us enough strength to circle yes. Not anymore. Just enough strength to circle yes. And I pray, God, that in that circling of that yes, oh, God, something miraculous is going to happen. Grace and freedom are going to begin to wash in. And though the war is not won, it's just barely begun. Lord, you're going to empower us for the war. And we're going to beat this thing in Jesus' name. We're going to declare victory in Jesus' name. Oh, we're going to take our rightful place back in the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, we're going to become a force in the culture again because the church finally decided to deal with its sexual sin. In Jesus' name, set us free today. No condemnation, just conviction. No condemnation, just conviction. The conviction to put the work in to see this thing through. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I just feel compelled to share this because I think this is important. Victory doesn't mean that you're never going to look at porn again from this moment forward. 
Victory means you're going to start the journey today. And the journey might have a couple stumbles along the way. And that's okay as long as we're on the journey. Now, if today ends up being your clean date and you never look back, praise God. But if you have a stumble, we're not going to give up. We're going to get through this. We're going to get through this. Thank you, Jesus.